Today's sermon will be read from Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, you can follow along with me in your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen directly behind me. All right, the word of the Lord. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountain shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hamnal to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day.
Good morning. All right, kiddos, off you go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken. And God, thank you that you've even given us hard texts. So as to make us wrestle and pray. So God, as we consider once again worldwide justice, help us to do so faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so as Nick mentioned at the beginning, this book, the book of Zechariah that we've been walking through for the last couple months, it's maybe been difficult for some of you. Uh, as, as Nick said, maybe some of you are glad that we're stepping away from it. And uh, uh, I'm sure that it's been difficult for you because I know that it's been difficult for me. Uh, it's difficult because it's kind of hard to figure out what it's saying. What's the point of the passage? That's good preaching. What the point of the passage would be the point of the sermon. So it's been hard for me because I'm trying to figure out what does it mean? What does it say? When is it fulfilled? That's been hard for us. And secondly, it's been hard for me as a preacher to figure out how to package that difficult truth to you in such a way as to make it comprehensible, to make it understandable. That's been a challenge for me. Uh, but I think the third way that it's Zechariah has pushed us and challenged us is because it talks a lot about end times. End times. The end times. The return of Christ. Uh, so Jesus resurrected some 2,000 years ago. And so when we think about resurre- when we think about the return of Christ, it can be difficult to listen to sermons about this, th- this stuff because it seems irrelevant to our lives, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest about it. It seems irrelevant. Jesus resurrected and ascended 2,000 years ago. It doesn't seem like he's going to uh, return in the next thousand years. You know, it doesn't seem like much less the next 10 or 20 of our lives together. And so this stuff seems irrelevant to us. Um, and even if Jesus comes back in our lifetime, right, Jesus is going to do his thing, right? He's going to show up. Jesus says himself, it's going to happen so quickly, you won't have time to prepare for it. And so... These teachings on the end times can seem irrelevant. We may be even saying, Nathan, can we just get more practical in life and practical in these sermons? Why do we need Zechariah 14 and end times stuff? Uh, And so as we wrap up Zechariah, I just want to briefly answer this question. uh, Why these teachings are here? Because the reality is, guys, there's a significant portion of the Bible that talks about end times. So you cannot be, as so many of you told me last week, a pan millennial um, for whatever pans out. Right. You got to think about this stuff. Right. I and I used to be that myself, as I said last week. And so God's given us a lot of the Bible. And so we need to think about it. And the reason why these passages, these end times passages are here, they're there for two reasons. The first reason is, is to warn those that do not hope in Christ. That's why they're there to warn those of you. There are people in this room right now. That are not hoping in Christ, not trusting in Christ. Uh, And so as a result, these passages are here to warn you as to what stands in the face of your future. And so that gives you one good reason, friend, to listen carefully to Zechariah 14. The other reason why they're here in this passage or in this Bible as a whole in times passage is to give Christians hope. To help them understand what's in front of them. Right. You guys want to have a decent idea. That may be the reason you show up today at 3.30 to pray. What is this building we're going to at 3.30 or next week? Uh, So. It's good to know what stands in front of us. And so that's why it's there. God gave it to us to give us hope in an otherwise hopeless world. Psychology today says that we are living in the midst of an epidemic of hopelessness. And so we as Christians are people of hope. And God gave us these scriptures to give us hope so that we would hope in him, knowing where the story is going to end. 
And so there's two good reasons to listen closely this morning to warn those that are not hoping in Christ. Give hope to those that do simple title. If you've been following us in this series, you've heard this a thousand times. Title of sermon worldwide peace. Two points, two points, worldwide justice, worldwide holiness. That's where we're going. Worldwide justice. Let's start there. Worldwide judgment, we might say. Zechariah 14, of course, comes after Zechariah 9, 10, 11, and 12, and 13. And in those passages, in those passages that we, what we've been seeing, we've seen an, an, an amazing development, haven't we? In those passages, we've seen this progression of the end times and what comes to them. And I'm going to put this picture, I'll put this together. You can throw that up. Does this look familiar to those of you that are familiar with the storyline of the Bible? Just take a look at that. We saw in Zechariah 9, Palm Sunday, Zechariah 11, the rejection of Jesus, the good shepherd for 30 silver pieces. We saw in Zechariah 12, 10, remember the piercing, which pointed to the crucifixion. And after that, Zechariah 13, this was last week, we saw forgiveness of sin and the cleansing of people, his people. And then Zechariah 14, we are going to see the day of the Lord. Guys, if you look at that, what does that teach you? That's the whole New Testament in miniature. That's the entire New Testament in miniature. From Zechariah 9 to 14, you get the entire message of the New Testament in a few chapters. Absolutely astounding. And so again, last week, we learned about how God would cleanse His people. After that crucifixion, we learned about justification and sanctification. How God in Christ at the cross forgives those that trust in Him. And then that rest of the chapter, you remember, is about sanctifying, cleansing us from that sin. And so chapter uh, chapter 13 represents the days that we're in now. Christ has been crucified, resurrected, ascended. He's cleansing us. He's cutting off his eye off our idols. Uh, and so chapter 14 that we're looking at here is the final chapter of redemption. That is the last thing that's yet to come. These are the days that we wait for. And so take a look at the text there. Zechariah 14 in verses one and two, we read a continuation of the refining fires of chapter 13. Now keep in mind also, chapter 14 is picking up, if you remember from two weeks ago, it's picking up from chapter 12, where there was this big battle. Remember that? They were surrounding Jerusalem. So 14 is picking up from that. Remember that they're going to surround Jerusalem. There would be this big fight, the whole earth. That's the same day or days that the Lord is referencing here in chapter 14. Except here in 14, they give us some more commentary on that battle itself. And what we read here is initially not good. It's the continuation of those refining fires from chapter 13, verse 9. Those refining fires, they get hotter. Verse 2 says the same thing that chapter 12 did, that the Lord gathers all the nations, including uh, including uh, the, the surrounding regions. They surround Jerusalem, and we find in that passage right there in verse 2, initially Jerusalem, Judah, they get the boom. It comes hard on them. Things go bad. Really bad. City is taken. Houses are plundered. Women are raped. These words, guys, are here to, in, to they are intended to convey worst case scenario. Awful. Destruction. Terribleness. Darkness. Dismay. Chaos. That's the point of this passage. They're intended to communicate that evil is coming in. And as a result, what happens is what we thought about in chapter 13, verse 8. Half of the city of Jerusalem goes into exile, but, and we'll come back to this group in a second, the other half does not get cut off from the city. 
So in these first couple verses, if we are watching a movie about this text, we would see that verses 1 and 2 have a lot of minor key music in them. A lot of black, a lot of darkness, those kinds of things. And then in verse 3, we look to the eastern horizon. And there we see light and sound break in amidst this chaos. It says in verse 3 that the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when, as when He fights on the day of battle. On this day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And then look what happens. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall be moved northward and the other half southward. And when the Lord shows up, basically what the text is teaching us here in three and in verse three is the Lord shows up and boom, it's loud. It is unmistakable. It comes in with great thunder. No discreet entry by the Lord here. The might of the Lord enters in. There's no mistaking his presence. Mountains move. And in the midst of this earthquake, God's people then as a result, they see him come into this chaos, to this terrible evil that's happening. They see him show up and his people run into that valley that is just created as a result of his coming in. They run into that valley where he broke in amidst this chaos. And as God's people are running out to that valley, no doubt they, no doubt we, would be frightened by all of the evil, all of the darkness that is ensuing around us. Perhaps there's a high level of fear. And then, verse 5, God's people look up amidst all of that, when darkness, dismay, terrible things happening. Verse 5, God's people look up, and what do they see? But the entry of the Lord to the fight. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. Did you guys catch the confidence of Zechariah in that? Then the Lord, my God, showed up. My God, he's now here. Boom, here it comes. The Lord, my God, entered the fight. And not only does he enter in this fight to come to judge the evil that's happening in the world, we've also been hearing all through Zechariah about this Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. And we've said the Lord is, the Lord of hosts means that he's the Lord of an army. Well, here we finally get to see the army. We get to see the host that he brings with him in this final battle. And we see that it's all the holy ones. Holy holy ones there would include angels, but also, as we will see, it will include his resurrected and redeemed people. And as this battle is coming to its final pitch with furrowed brows and faces like flint, spines like steel, courage like a lion, and love for their Lord... Those holy ones along with their Lord, they descend the Mount of Olives. They come into uh, these evil people that are destroying Jerusalem and they judge them. They pillage them. They send them away. We'll come back to the intervening verses, but for now, take a look down there in verse 12. See what happens. We give a description of how evil is judged, how those apart from Christ are judged in the final battle. We see a plague that comes to the people warring against Jerusalem. And that, that plague includes four things that bring about their final destruction. You see in verse 12, that strange passage, right? Verse 12, their flesh will rot. Eyes in their sockets, tongues they will rot. Verse 13 is the same thing we saw in chapter 12. There's panic, there's internal confusion as God comes in. The third thing we see there in verse 14 is Judah and Jerusalem join in. They take the enemy's spoil. That's verse 14. And then in verses 17 to 19, we find that the plague afflicts them by a lack of rain, meaning no provision for them. 
In fact, this, this plague is so severe that it extends in verse 15 to the enemy's work animals, horses and mules and things of the like. In short, the enemy looks like they're winning at the beginning and the Lord comes in, his army enters into the fight and they devastate the enemy by this plague. And judgment then is total. And therefore the victory is total for the Lord. We see in verse 9, take a look there. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. In other words, all the idols of chapter 13 that were being cleansed, they all do get cleansed. And the Lord alone stands on that day. He's the only one. He's not only the king of Jerusalem. He's not only the king of Judah. He's not only the king of the Middle East. This battle is for the world and the king stands. The Lord alone is king of the earth. And the enemy is completely defeated once and for all. Now we need to ask the question, who exactly are these people that are being defeated? Who is this uh, enemy that God and his people are fighting against exactly? Well, just as we've seen throughout Zechariah, it includes people in the immediate region. You can see that in verse 19 of Egypt. But in verse 2, it includes who? All the nations. All of them. And verse 17 makes it even more clear. It's all the nations that do not go up to worship the King. The Lord of hosts. These are the Lord's enemies. People that do not know the one true and living God that has revealed himself in his word. Who has revealed himself in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Any who do not worship him, they make up the enemy that attacks his people, that attacks his beloved city. God's people are the ones that are being attacked. And any that do not hope in Christ, worship Christ, they are the victims of his powerful return. The Lord Jesus will devastate and overcome them once and for all. They will lose. And we can even get more clarity about this judgment if we turn to the New Testament. Go ahead and do that. Flip over to the right in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Keep your finger on Zechariah 14. We're going to come back to it. If you look over in Matthew chapter 24, we're going to see some more insight on this event. Matthew 24 verses 1 to 3 says as follows. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So again, we saw thought right through Zechariah, we thought a lot about the temple. And so Jesus is referencing the temple and the destruction of the temple. And then right after that, he talks, he sits where? The same place that uh, Zechariah said that the Lord would return on with his feet to divide the Mount of Olives. Jesus sits on that mountain, that same mountain, and then talks about the end times. Guys, don't think that Matthew didn't know what he was doing when he wrote that. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that he was that by recounting Jesus, talking about the temple, the destruction of the temple, and then him sitting on the Mount of Olives, what he was doing was referring to all that we see in Zechariah 14. And what follows Matthew 24, 1 to 3, is more teaching on the end times. And what we see in that teaching in Matthew 24 is some more of that already not yet stuff. Y'all have heard us talk so many 
things about. So things have already occurred, but things have not yet been completed. So we see there when Jesus talks about this abomination of desolation, I believe this was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Romans do surround Jerusalem. They come in and they overwhelm uh, Jerusalem. But God, Jesus, actually tells them uh, that those that hope in him to flee and they do flee. But that was not the completion of Zechariah 14 or even what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 24. Those events, that event in 70 A.D. was pointing to the events of Zechariah 14, the end time. They were pointers. They were signs to the end. And I'd love to show you how all of this gets consummated by just reading through Revelation 20 to 22, but in effort of uh, efficiency of time, I'm not going to do that. I encourage you to go back and do that. Let me read you just a portion of it and show you how this fits together. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, all the way at the back of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 27 to 10. We've read this verse once before when we preach... Zechariah 12, it says in Revelation 20, verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, and their number is like the sand of the sea. Again, this is going to sound a lot like Zechariah 14. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Again, Jerusalem, there's reference. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And look what happens as a result. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so as we think back to what Jesus was teaching in Matthew 24, we see what he taught so clearly and so often. Namely, that he taught that everybody on planet Earth sits in one of two armies. You're enrolled in one of two armies. There is no third army, no four army, no hundred armies. There's two armies. Jesus taught this. There is one army that is the army of the great deceiver. This one that surrounds Jerusalem, pillages. And Jesus describes them in another passage. Wide is the gate and easy is the, get, is the way that leads to destruction and most will enter it. Most of the world, Jesus says, are in the army of the great deceiver. Most of the world surrounds Jerusalem and attacks it. Most of the world does not worship Jesus. That's what Jesus says. They are the ones that God's people will come to judge. And the other army, Jesus describes as... Uh, as it being a narrow way, a narrow gate, narrow and hard is the way that leads to life everlasting. And Jesus says, few will enter that one. That's the two armies. Those are the, that second army is those, the army of the Lord. They're the ones that's coming into Jerusalem that love Jesus, hope in Jesus, have been made holy by his blood. Remember, guys, these passages, Zechariah 14, are here to warn us. So whose army are you in? And how do you know? As you answer those questions, don't forget that Satan is known as the great deceiver. And as Revelation 12, 12 teaches, he knows his time is short and he's on the rampage. He trusts in the might of his army to attack and overwhelm God's people and thus the Lord. But he knows in the end he will lose. Do you know that? Whose army are you in and how do you know? And if you're not in the army of the Lord Jesus, friend, do you know that your time is short? The battle will come 
And while you may experience some quick success in the end, the judgment of the Lord will fall upon you. Now listen, I understand that as we talk about these things, the doctrine of the judgment of God has fallen on hard times here in our context. It's not something that's really liked. Many people have even tried to alleviate God from passages like Zechariah 14. They look at things like Zechariah 14, 17 and say, well, you know, that doesn't mean all the people that don't worship Jesus, that means something else. Even to the degree where people will say that there's this sort of Old Testament God that's full of wrath and there's a New Testament God that's full of uh, compassion. And yet, friends, we see Jesus, this one that is almost universally revered as a compassionate teacher. We see him regularly, frequently, openly talking about judgment. And so if we take Jesus, guys, we've got to take all of Jesus, not just the parts that we like. We've got to also include his teachings on judgment. And when we do, I think it's important for us to see that Jesus sees this judgment tied to his compassion and love. They're tied to because to love is to protect that which is loved, right? And when that which is loved is attacked, is harmed or struck, we expect there to be justice because we love that thing, right? So love and justice go together, just like the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament go together. I'll give you a current illustration of this. We see this virtually daily in our news, right? Something happens and somebody does something wrong and there's outrage. You go watch the nightly news tonight, it'll be on there. Something goes wrong, people think that it's wrong and there's outrage. People want justice. Why? Because they love. That's why. They love that thing that's attacked. They didn't want this person. And then you'll notice this is this was significantly happening in our country the last week and a half. If somebody attempts to miss that justice. That will make them even more mad. They want them to face the lash of the law. They want them to be judged, whether that be Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or just some common person that does something else. Be it a sexual abuser, an emotional or physical abuser, a liar, a cheat, a murderer. They want them to see justice, right? You do. You want that. Or this could be just a common person that looks at something incredibly significant and doesn't care. We want people to kind of feel that you need to care. There's something wrong with that. So imagine someone walking by the cross of Christ where God gave his only son and they look at the cross and they just could care less. Everybody loves. And when someone attacks or harms that which we love, we expect justice. And listen to me, we should. We should. Because that's what God is like. That's what the God of love is like. It's exactly what we're seeing here in Zechariah 14. God is doing something about evil. And so Jesus' teachings and the Bible's teachings, they reflect this same sense of justice or judgment. They're kind of pulling it together. It's why you want it. Because the God that made you is a God of justice. And so friends, if you minimize his justice, you're then forced to minimize his love and his holiness, which of course is impossible. God is the author of the universe. He formed it. He put it into being. He sustains it. He loved it enough to send his son to rescue many from that judgment. And yet the throngs continue to reject him. And so we should expect the penalty to fit the crime. And since the crime is against an infinitely holy God, we should expect the penalty to be incredibly severe. 
And that's what we read in Zechariah 14 and in Revelation and in Matthew 24. And so while Christians like the Lord should never, I repeat, never rejoice in death. We do rejoice in a God that avenges all wrongs. Like the victims of injustice today who see justice and want justice for their uh, for those that have done wrong to them, we too rejoice when we see God penalizing all those that hated Him enough to not care about Him. This is what love is and this is what love does. And I'm thankful and I trust that you are as well. That I live in a world and worship a God that will let no wrongdoers get away with it. In this life or the next. No one gets away from justice. And guys, guess what? That includes this guy too. God is not harsh. He is consistent with His character. And while maintaining that character, He in love made a way out of that judgment. Hear me. God is a God that will judge, but He has made a way out of that judgment for those that trust Him. So friend, if you are realizing in this moment that you are in the army of the great deceiver, He's made a way out of that judgment. He's made a way for you to switch teams. He didn't have to do that. He was willing to judge Himself so that you would not have to be judged. He did that in the work of His Son. That's why Christians hold up the cross so clearly. He made a way out of His judgment so that you do not have to be in the midst of it. Either you hope in Him, trust in Him, or you have to pay that penalty yourself. God is a God of grace and mercy as is evidenced by His Son. He will be consistent with His holiness and bring judgment, but He also is gracious and loving as is evidenced by His making a way for you to escape that judgment. He's an amazing God. So repent and believe on Christ, friend. And remember that on the door of hell, above it reads, deserved. And on the door leading into heaven, it says, undeserved for all that enter it. None of us deserve it. They go to heaven. It's only by His grace. And so as we consider heaven, let's go ahead and turn there in our passage. So we've thought about worldwide justice. Let's now consider worldwide holiness. Worldwide holiness. Slide back up to Zechariah. Go ahead and flip back there. I've got to get there myself. Zechariah chapter 14. Look there at verse 5. Verse 5. There we see the Lord moving in on evil along with the holy ones. And then the text, that's verse, and then the, uh, verse 6, the text transitions into what that day will be like for the ones that have been made holy by King Jesus. So the rest of this passage shows you what it looks like for the God of holiness to enter into the world. What happens? For those that are apart from Him, we've already considered that. Look what it looks like for those that are in Christ. The ones that have been made holy. You'll see there that it's a unique day known to the Lord. Sounds similar to what Jesus says. But then we get this strange twist. At evening time, there will be light. And then we get, in verse 7, one of my new favorite verses. No cold. No frost. So we got no cold when the Lord shows up. No cold, no night. And then verse 8, the living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. We see that half of them to the east, half of those waters will go to the west. And those waters, listen, those waters will never have an end. They're going to flow in summer and in winter. 
Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. Again, the Lord is going to cut off, chapter 13, all those idols. And after that, after the great battle, he's the only one that stands. He's one. He's the only one that remains after the great battle. And then in verse 10, all the surrounding regions of Jerusalem will be laid low as Jerusalem is lifted up like this mountain. In verse 11, Jerusalem shall be inhabited and never again will there be a decree of utter destruction. That is, no more judgment, no more exile. And we see there in verse 10, there also we find that Jerusalem shall dwell in security. This is exactly what we saw. Do you remember way back at the beginning in Zechariah 2? Same thing. Remember that? Remember the guy's going to go out and he's going to go measure Jerusalem and the guy's like, don't even bother because it's going to be so big. Remember that? And then the Lord says, I will come in and I'll be a wall of fire around it to protect it. And I will be dwelling in the midst of it. And all the nations will stream up to it. Same thing here. Wouldn't you love to live in a city that had no destruction ever and it was completely secure? Slide down to verse 16. Everyone who survives of all the nations that great battle that have come against Jerusalem, they shall go up to the mountain, up to Jerusalem. And we know from Revelation 12, 11, all those that are in Christ, they conquer. How? Not by their own might. By the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the survivors of the fight, the, fight, the survivors of the battle are survivors because they conquer by the impenetrable blood of Christ, the one that conquers all. And so by grace, through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, we that believe are made holy. Not by anything that we have done, but only because of what Christ has done. And so we fight that in that battle. We survive by His grace and by His power. We go up to the mountain of Jerusalem year after year, we see in verse 16, and we worship the King, the Lord of hosts. And when we go up on that mountain, what we're going to do is when we worship Him, we're going to keep the Feast of Booths. Some of you are going to uh, say, what? Feast of Booths? What's that all about? You'll notice it's mentioned there three times in the passage. We're going to go up to the mountain. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to keep the Feast of the Booths. We're going to worship Him by keeping the Feast of the Booths. So why are you thinking, why is this festival going to go on through to the end of all of them? Well, the Feast of Booths was the feast that the Lord had Israel to keep once a year in order to, do, in order to remind them of His deliverance from their slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. They would have constructed temporary booths and adorned them with plants and different kinds of fruit. And they would have done this in order to recall the Lord's grace in salvation. So can't you see now why we would be worshiping in that way in the New Jerusalem, keeping the Feast of Booths? We go up to the Mount of Jerusalem to worship the King. We remember that it was His loving and powerfully gracious hand that saved us and gave us citizenship on this mountain. We worship by recounting the Lord's grace. Isn't that amazing? It is. And finally, maybe the most imaginatively wonderful thing of all about the New Jerusalem is found in those final verses, verses 20 and 21. When you read that, it may seem sort of benign or maybe even strange to you. It says there that holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of horses and on all the pots of Jerusalem and Judah. And no traitor... Some of your Bibles may even read, no Canaanite, and the house of the Lord will be there on that day. Now, what's that about? 
Well, previously in the days of Zechariah, the only place you would have seen the inscription holy to the Lord would have been on the high priest. There would have been a sort of plate that would have been fixed on the turban of the high priest where once a year he goes into the Holy of Holies to minister before the presence of the Lord. And also the only sort of utensils like pots that would be considered holy were the ones that were being used in the temple. So in other words, what's happening here, guys, when Zechariah says that after the great fight, when the Lord comes in, he cuts it all off, he's won. When Zechariah says that after this fight, when the new Jerusalem rises up, we worship the Lord, we remember his grace in our salvation. What he is saying here is that all the city of the new Jerusalem will be holy. In other words, it'll be like a really big temple, not just a little temple in the middle of the city. The whole city will be a temple. Everything will be holy. Everything will be pure. No traitors, that is, no outsiders, only the family of God in Christ, only holiness. And the entire land, from horses' bells to pots, to the soil of the ground, the leaves of the trees, and the rivers that flow east and west forever, in summer and winter, all the way down to the souls of men and women, it's all like one big temple. It's all drenched in the holiness and the beauty of God. Nothing is unclean. It's all perfectly pure because of the Lamb of God. His grace, His love, His mercy that brought it all about. What a city. What a city. No cold, no frost, no night, only day. Living waters that flow forever and ever and ever and ever. The Lord reigning, ruling over the whole earth where every idol, every evil, every injustice has been taken down. No destruction ever again. Complete security. The city sitting perfectly secure as it is inhabited by a people redeemed by the blood of the land from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And they come together, all of us do, they come together up every year to worship the Lord and be reminded of His gracious salvation that got Him there. The city drenched in perfection from pots to parakeets to the peaks of mountain down to the shores of beaches. All of it holy. All of it pure. All of it the way that it ought to be. A world full of the holiness of the Prince of Peace. The new Jerusalem. The world at rest as it was in the beginning and as it should be. This, beloved, is what awaits us. This is what awaits us after the great battle. God will be all in all. This is what we have to look forward to. This is our great hope. And so it's no surprise when we turn to the back of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22. If you weren't careful, you'd read that and you might be led to believe that you're reading Zechariah 14. Let me just read a piece, just a few pieces of that and tell me if it doesn't sound like it's echoing Zechariah 14. Revelation 20, 9 to 11. Then came... One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues, same plagues, and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. We know that to be those that are in Christ. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Revelation 20, 21 to 27. Sliding down a little bit. The street of the city was pure gold. 
like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. In other words, it's secure. And there will be no night there. Same teaching. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That is, no traitor, no Canaanite, no outsider, no enemy of God, only the redeemed in Christ. And then finally, Revelation 21, we're still listening for the waters, right? Then the angels... Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Exactly what Zechariah 2 predicted. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be upon their foreheads. Again, hearkening back to the notion of the great priest with the inscription on his turban. And we're still waiting for this again. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Same thing, Zechariah 14 is teaching. Guys, this is the final chapter of redemption. This is the day that we hope for. This is the restoration of all things. This is the kind of, when we think about that great going up to the Mount of Jerusalem to uh, worship the Lord, we can think about that assembly. It's the, an assembly. It's a church of restoration. It's a kind of restoration church. Worshiping the Lord together. And so, beloved... Let's take some time to just briefly consider a couple ways to apply this to our lives. Two brief applications. The first one is clearly taken from Zechariah 14, 16. How do we respond to this? How do we respond? This day is coming. A battle is going to happen. God's going to judge all those that are apart from him. And he's going to bring peace. He's going to bring joy. He's going to bring restoration. He's going to bring life, joy forever, security, love forever and ever. How do, how, what do we do now? Two things. One, worship. Every year, it says in verse 16, we will go up to the mountain in heaven and worship the Lord by recounting the grace of his salvation in our lives together. The Feast of Booths. And so, don't wait to do that. Do it now. Worship the Lord now. In fact, just an appeal to you, friend. If you do not worship the Lord now, you will not be there to do it then. Worship the risen and reigning king of the earth today. Another way of saying that. So it's sort of a church word. Let me define it. Maybe put some other words to help you understand how it is we worship. Another way of saying that is treasure Christ. Adore him. Enjoy him. Lovingly submit to him. Sing to him. Pray to him. Speak of him. Study him. Enjoy him. Be glad in him. Look for Him in the horses' bells and the cooking pots of today. 
Friends, his glory is breaking in all around us. It's breaking in all around us. So see him and worship him through those things. Find his handiwork. There's a $10 phrase that theology theologians use that I think would be good to teach you. I normally try to not use these things, but I think this is a useful one. The term is inaugurated eschatology. First one means inaugurated, means begun. Eschatology means study of end times or end times. So put the words together. Inaugurated eschatology means that the eschaton has begun. That means things are not yet completed, but things have begun. Heaven has begun to break in. Holiness is around us. So think about it, guys. That Christmas night when Mary gave birth to Jesus, heaven was invading the earth. Holiness was coming in. The kingdom of the, the king of the kingdom of heaven was coming into the world. And while he humbled himself by becoming a man, he still brought heaven with him. Right. He said, you look at me, you see the father. We see holiness breaking in through his healings, through his forgiveness. Upon his death, burial, resurrection and ascension, he sent the Holy Spirit into the world. This is why Peter would quote the prophet Joel on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 after the ascension to say that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, what he's saying is it's begun. The eschaton has begun. The end is here. Heaven is breaking in, friends, wherever the spirit of Christ blows and redeems and makes holy by his presence. And so worship the Lord by looking for heaven all around you. Look for it. Be attentive to it. Look for His holiness, for instance, in creation. Don't worship the creation. Look through it. See God's purity in flowers, in the dawn of the day, in the dew of the morning. See the world, friends, in translucence, not in opaques. In other words, learn to look through the beauty of our world into the great, beautiful face of God. Worship the Lord as you see His holiness breaking into a life of a brother or sister. Worship the Lord when you see Him breaking in. Worship the Lord when you see God's grace and mercy and holiness breaking into your life. Reflect on it. Enjoy it. Think about the fact of where you were 2, 10, 5, 20, 30 years ago. Reflect on where you were and where you are now. And then when you see the Lord's grace, you see His holiness breaking in, you're able to see it more clearly. Celebrate the Feast of Booths. Rejoice in the Lord and His holiness breaking into your life or in the life of others. Which leads me to the other place to worship the Lord and enjoy His holiness. It's an obvious one, but it's one that I think we can, confer- we can forget. And that is the church. Right? The church. This, believe it or not, guys, is a preview of the end. God's people gathering together to worship the Lord. Take a look at that. You've heard John reference uh, the bride there in Revelation 20. We know that to be the church. We know from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, uh, Ephesians 3, 9 to 10, God has brought to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, he's saying it's, it, it's known up there and so everything beneath it. It's known. You can see the holiness of God. You can see the wisdom of God as His people gather. That's exactly why Paul writes just after this in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
And so, beloved, when you think about coming to church on Sunday, can I just, if you're not already doing this, just give you something to think about. Think about that as a journey up the mountain to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. When you're walking to church, taking the metro to church, driving to church, think about it as a kind of way in which something, one part of what you will do. Coming to climb the mountain and worship the risen and reigning Lord Jesus, recounting the grace of his salvation. Isn't that what we do here every single week? Every single week we do this. So this is a preview of what we will do then in part. We are citizens of Jerusalem, so we come together and we worship the Lord. And so if you want to experience some of that inaugurated eschatology, if you want to experience the new Jerusalem, heaven while still on earth, come here every single week looking to worship the Lord and enjoy Him alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ. The church and all of her flaws is a preview of coming attractions. We are mankind out in front of time. You think about that every time you hear the testimony of someone. Every time we do a baptism. Every time we take the Lord's Supper. Holiness is coming in. It's a preview. It's breaking in. Worship the Lord. Enjoy the Lord. And secondly, what do we do in anticipating these great ends? We wait. We don't like that one, do we? I want it now, right? I want, I got a phone. I can get the whole world delivered in two days. Free. We got no time for waiting. And yet, beloved, God calls us to wait. Another way of saying that is to hope in the return of Christ. While the eschaton has become, it is obviously not yet complete. I'm sure. I mean, guys, just try to imagine the Israelites hearing this from Zechariah. I'm sure it's difficult for them as they're rebuilding the temple to hear about that there's worse days ahead. Right? Remember back in chapter seven, where they said, like, hey, we're back here. Seventy Years of exile are done. Can we stop fasting now? Because all is going to be great. I mean, imagine how hard Zechariah is like, mm, you, know, you need to be, rebuild the temple. And by the way, that thing's coming down too. And it's going to get really rough. Hard for them. We can see the previews of those horrors in verses 1 and 2 of Zechariah 14. And so while we can worship Jesus now, see His holiness at work in our lives together, creation at large, we still wait for the consummation of the Lord's return. We uh, still wait for His feet to land on the Mount of Olives, sweep through this world, and deliver us into that everlasting day. Still wait for that. It's interesting, when you go back and look at Matthew 24 that I read earlier, remember the Mount of Olives piece? It's interesting, when you go back and see that, Jesus talks about the end times and He kind of finishes talking about the judgment, and the first thing that he says is a parable. And he tells a parable about the ten virgins. First thing he says after the final judgment is the parable of the ten virgins. The parable of the ten virgins goes like this. Jesus says that a kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to the meet to bridegroom. Five were foolish and five were wise. That should sound familiar to you. Remember the, the inhabitants of Jerusalem? Half of them go, half of them stay. The five who were foolish, Jesus said, were foolish because they took no oil for their lamps. The five who were wise were wise because they took oil for their lamps. And what Jesus says next has been so useful to me as I sit and wonder if he's ever going to come back. He says next, and as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. In other words, Jesus just taught us, I'm going to take a long time to come back. It's going to be delayed. He told us that it wouldn't be quick. But at midnight, he said, 
Someone called out, the bridegroom is here, come out to meet him. And then all of those ten virgins, they rose to meet him. But the five who didn't bring oil had to leave to go get oil. In other words, they weren't ready. They weren't waiting. But the five, Jesus says, who had oil were ready for his return. And because they were ready, Jesus says, they were invited into the feast where the others were left out. And Jesus said, I never knew you. So what Jesus is saying, guys, is watch. Stay awake. Says it so often through Matthew 24 and 25. Stay awake. Stay awake. Watch. You know neither the day nor the hour. Be hopeful. Look for him. Anticipate his return. Yes, the bridegroom is delayed. Yes, we're drowsy. We're wondering if he's going to come back. But soon enough, he will. Will you be ready? As is evidenced by your waiting on him. Hoping in his return. Anticipating it. Or will you be so oriented to this earth that you miss his coming? And when he comes, it's too late. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And beloved, listen, look at me. I know that's hard. I get that that's hard. Our lives are filled with trials and tribulations. It's filled of tedious and tiresome tasks. So I know that it's hard to be waiting upon it, anticipating his returns. The Lord knows that. That's why he gave us all of these parables and all these teachings about waiting and staying awake. That was his loving uh, aspect of his life to give that to us, to remind us, that yes, it's going to be hard, but you've got to stay awake. Set your mind on things above. Guys, the return of Christ is not fantasy. It's not fiction. It's as real as those 200 other prophecies that he's already fulfilled. So why wouldn't he fulfill one more? He's coming. And so, to sum it up, wait upon him. And as you worship, or as you wait, worship. Worship as you wait. Worship as you wait. Soon enough, we will be in the heavenly Jerusalem, drinking from the living waters and the warm glow of the glory of Christ. With no more fears of death or destruction or darkness. We'll have light forevermore. This is the one I love. No more struggling against my sin. Thank God that will be over. No more fighting to do the right thing. No more guilt. No more shame. No more disappointment. No more faith in an unseen God. We'll get to finally see Him and enjoy Him. Amen. We will see His face and we will love Him, worship Him, and love each other perfectly. It's already begun. I could tell a thousand stories of just this church alone. Love to hear. I was love hearing the stories of the Moats family just this week as we were in there sort of cleaning up, getting ready for next Sunday, as they were telling story after story. Me and Jeremy Samani were in there telling story about good things and bad things that had happened in the life of their last 21 years. It's already happening. And so, beloved, may we... This is, this is our vision as a church right here. We wait upon Him. We hope in Him. And we worship Him together. Inviting others in to know Him and enjoy Him forever. That beautiful vision out in front of us. It's going to come. May he find you waiting. Let's pray that he would come soon. Lord God Almighty, we rejoice that you are a God of justice. And you are a God of justice because you are a holy God. We rejoice in these truths. Hard though they can sometimes be. But Lord, thank you for the person and the work of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that entered into the world, not only the second time, but that first time to give us a way out of your judgment. Oh, we rejoice 
We pray that many more would be saved. And they would come into the army of the Lord. And may we that have been saved, oh God, we pray, teach us to worship you, to enjoy you, to delight in you. And secondly, help us to wait amidst a tiresome and weary world. And we hope in you and your soon return. And we do pray that the new Jerusalem would come down from heaven. God, may it be by the end of the day today. We ask in your name. Amen.